The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. From Showtime and A24. We love most about Whitney. Comes a new series unlike any other. Well, where do I even start? Academy Award winner Emma Stone. I like how you fight for us. Nathan Fielder. Money doesn't really matter when it's about doing the right thing. And Benny Safdie. You guys are strong, right? At the end of the day, you're going to survive, right? Next question. New episodes of The Curse, streaming now on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching if you're over on YouTube and Spotify. A couple of admin notes. If you subscribe to the newsletter recently, make sure you'll get an email that is an opt-in email after you subscribe. You want to make sure you go to that email and hit, yep, I'm a human and I subscribe to this. That way it doesn't go to your spam filter. And on that note, most likely, especially if you're a Gmail user or an Outlook user, it's going to go to your promotions or your unfocused email Make sure you drag and drop that into your primary or focused email accounts. That way you get my witty and just full of great nuggets of wisdom emails each and every week. This episode is with AP and Voodoo. It's from the live stream we did over on YouTube this past week on the anniversary, on the eve of the anniversary of the two-year withdrawal from Afghanistan. They both dropped episodes earlier this month with me. Uh, Quite insightful. I think you'll enjoy those if you haven't checked those out. Do so. This episode, there are a couple technical little blunders. I'll take the hit for that. There's some things that we just couldn't overcome. AP was sitting in the middle of a hurricane, multiple tornado warnings going off on his phone, but the champion that he is, he pressed forward and made it happen. But there might be a dropout or a slight lag here and there. And Voodoo was at the Weapons and Tactics Conference, a busy conference. She was kind enough to step out and record with us. She might or might not have her phone overheat at some point, but... She was in the fight for the most of the episode there. So thanks to both AP and Voodoo for joining in there. If you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, click the link down below. That'll take you over there. And then again, you'll just get those great little nuggets of wisdom each and every week. With that being said, I think that is it. Let's jump into the episode with AP and Voodoo. Well, welcome. I'm honored to be sitting here with AP and Voodoo, and I say sitting, I mean, it is remotely, but uh, happy to have you guys back on the podcast. If you haven't checked out their episodes, it's in the last few episodes with AP and Voodoo. Both have individual episodes, C-17 pilots by trade. We're not going to dig a lot into their background and their careers. Those exist in those episodes, but today we're on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the final withdrawal from Afghanistan. So we have a couple of Patreon questions that have popped up. If you're hanging out in the chat and you have questions, you can drop those in the chat. I'm not super technical savvy, and I'm trying to run a conversation, so set the bar low. I'll try to get to those questions as we go through, but feel free if you have a question to drop that in the chat, and we'll, we'll get to that as we get going. But AP and Voodoo, thank you for joining me on the podcast yet again, and it's an honor. 
be sitting here and getting a little bit more of your insight and what your thoughts and perspectives as, again, we approach the two-year anniversary. Because two years ago, you guys were doing something a little bit different. So uh, thanks for sitting here today. AP, I want to kick it over to you to start this. As we reflect on the two-year anniversary, now that you have retired from the military, transitioned to the next chapter of life, and probably now be able to take a step back because obviously you were intricately involved in the planning process of this withdrawal. I'm sure you've had some time to reflect. What are some of the thoughts as you think about uh, tomorrow? Yeah, well, we uh, we actually got a, a text group with all the, the guys in the final mission. We were texting about it today. You know, not, not something that we'll obviously ever forget. And we did the same thing last year. Um, so there has been, it, it's definitely been on my mind a lot on the this entire week and then uh as well as those are the folks who were there with us on on the title like exactly right now oh uh i think we were i'm doing the math right we were airborne out of kabul um we we had just uh well, we're, I'm sorry, we're in the planning. We probably were in the mission planning room doing some final planning to get ready to go tomorrow for the final mission is what we're doing. I um, had a lot of time to reflect on it, especially since I, since I left the service. And, uh, um, you know, what, I, what, what I'll say is we're, we're all very proud of what we did and what happened there at the end. The military members are very proud of what happened there at the end. And, and uh, what I would say our success in spite of the situation that we were sort of thrown into Um I certainly am very proud of everybody that I got a chance to serve with there. And and then also feeling like there's still today a little bit of unfinished business out there because we know we left a lot of Afghans behind um, who had ties to the U.S. And um, I know there's been a lot of agencies out there, a lot of uh, essentially um, volunteer agencies who have gone back in. If you haven't heard about any of those great organizations, there are folks, some ex-military who have gone back into country specifically to try to help. Uh, get folks out. I've had two different conversations with people um, whose families, uh, they're both Afghan, Afghan Americans whose families were left behind and they got out. One was uh, a student at Tufts University. I gave a talk at Tufts University and this kid was telling me that uh, his his family had to get smuggled out through Pakistan because they, they weren't able to get through the lines to get on a C-17 to get out. And then similarly, I met a doctor in Florida whose wife and kids were at home visiting um, their family in Kabul. And they were able to get out on a C-17, thankfully. Uh, they were able to show essentially U.S. driver's license that proving that they were Americans, got out on a C-17, but unfortunately the rest of their family was was trapped there. So a lot of mixed emotions, I think, right now, probably for all of us who are there, um, reflected on, on, you know, the final mission especially, the a lot of us uh, who are operating, we think it was awesome. Right, we get to fly airplanes and do something cool, really special, really unique, and uh, and that those memories are pretty fantastic. Um, but not not all of them are, are great. Be uh, on August twenty sixth, a couple of days ago, uh, we hit the two year anniversary of the thirteen Americans who were um, killed in the Abbey Gate bombing. And I think there was something like fifty four wounded, one hundred and seventy uh, Afghans were killed in that. So that's a that's a significant low point and and that's still uh 
there's still stuff going on. If, if nobody saw it out there, just yesterday, those 13 Gold Star families were out at Congress. Um, they did a little round table and them testified on uh, on what happened. Still, you know, here we are two years later, still looking for answers uh, as to how we got there and, and how it was that their family members were killed in that instant. Um, and then even in the Air Force, there's some issues. You know, one of my great frustrations that here we are two years later, we still have a ton of people who, who participated in it on the Air Force side who have not been recognized by the military. So they have not received de the decorations that they deserve for, for whatever reason, the Defense Department or the Air Force decided not to create a medal for OAR like we do for a lot of operations, right? Those of us who have served know that that typically there'll be a lot of operations that go on. They do that for this. So it, everybody had to be submitted for an individual medal. And an overwhelming number of those medals got denied. And nobody knows why. Uh, a lot of the, the people that I served with, a lot of the people that I commanded have still today not been recognized for that. And so, um, man, there's, there is a, there are still, I'm sad to say a lot of frustration two years later from everything that went down at this time two years ago. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It, the metal piece and the war piece, that's something to me that seems like that's just such an easy thing for the air force to do. It should be such an easy thing for the air force to do to at a minimum take care of its people. You know, for those who are tuning in that aren't in the military, awards and decorations, those are big deals when it comes to promotions and progression and different assignments, et cetera. And so I think when you have something that is like this scenario that everyone has gone through, uh, recognizing people, seems like that should be a no-brainer. I'll, I'll pivot here a little bit. Voodoo. So you're, uh, I appreciate you joining us. Voodoo is doing, she's helping to do work. So one AP is sitting in a, a in a hurricane. So that's uh, a little challenge in itself. And then Voodoo is out there still making things happen, uh, deal with the weapons and tactics conference. So busy people. So thanks for joining But Voodoo. As you look back two years coming up on the, again, the eve of the anniversary here, what, what are some of your thoughts when you look back and reflect on it? This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. It was funny that uh, AP talked about talking with some of his counterparts and the crews that went out on that last night because we've been doing the same thing. I've talked with a lot of my friends that were at the 816th EAS out in Al-Udeed. I know Liam's on here. Ice is on here. So, hey, Liam, what's up? Uh, <laughs> but that being said, that it, it's been two years, and that is an emotional moment if you think about it, because there is a lot to unpack in two years. Some people still haven't fully understood what that event or multiple events, if they flew multiple mi missions, meant to them or how it has affected their life. So where if you kind of talked about the recognition or lack of, I really would like to shed some light on like the mental health portion of it and how that affected people and how they're just discovering 
now a couple years later that oh that meant something i've talked to even the members of my crew and i was talking with caitlin specifically and she's like when we talked about it because her and i did a sit down about it she's like i forgot some of the small details that really made those missions what they were because i don't know it's sometimes a coping skill for people to just not think about it or black it out but each person kind of has to deal with it in their own way the things that they saw what they smelled how they dealt with it emotionally or didn't deal with it emotionally just to get through that matter and that was something that really started to dawn upon me just recently that that event affected not only the people that were on the ground that we helped get out of there but it affected everyone who was involved with it whether they were working at the camp that the people were staying at whether they were flying the aircraft whether they were working on the ground crews whether they were behind the scenes doing pol which is like fueling or maintenance and turning the jets every day like that was a significant emotional event it was so much more than just daily operations and i think that's the biggest thing to take away from here we all sign up to serve we all know that we are life offline but at the same those events were more than just an average day in the life of a c-17 pilot or loadmaster or maintainer or amlo officer they meant so much more to a lot more people so when thinking about it that's that's really where my mind goes but how are we able to kind of unpack that suitcase or start dealing with the emotional toll that it may or may not have taken on ourselves or on our friends and just surrounding ourselves with people that we love reaching out to people that we love and telling them that we're here. We love them. Um, I know it's all touchy feelings, but it really matters. Like this really matters because what we do on a daily basis, it's not always easy. And those couple weeks of our lives were extraordinary for all that were involved. And it meant something to each one of us to be able to acknowledge that and say, hey, we're acknowledging it and we're moving forward. I know that AP's group did that at a conference last year because I got to witness part of it. And it was it was life altering just seeing we also met seeing how people interacted and how they they kind of just I don't know if Voodoo can see it but uh Joe he's mentioned this that I guess just try to track her down at the JBLM air show appreciates her and a fellow heroes so if you do have a comment or question you can drop that in the chat see if Voodoo jumps back in here I know she should be super happy at froze on that 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 picture there but uh AP, this is going to be a softball question. This latest of the uh, the the page. Yeah, I'll pick up. Oh, yeah, go for it. And uh, this again, I think this is probably easy. But what would be the minimum or the shortest landing distance, depending on surface breaks, reversers working, and what would be the steepest you know glide slope on approach that the C seventeen could fly? So runway length, and then talk to me like I guess a tactical approach because I think you're there. I was story. You shared a tactical approach story, but. Um, it's foreign, foreign to me. So over to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I picked up most of that. I think that my minimum runway length is how we're talking about required yeah, we'll, for C-17. Yeah. It will be the min, min runway length and uh, it will have to glide. Like for us. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. I, uh, I hate to say it. Obviously it, it, it depends. So a lot of it's weight dependent, but the, the C-17 is built to land on a 3000 foot runway. So we're talking tiny, 3000 feet, um, to put that in perspective, what you typically find for uh, any of your airliners, you know, if you're flying on Delta Southwest, something like that, those guys are using seven to 10,000. Most runners are 10,000 feet, so a couple miles long. So 3,000 feet, especially for big aircraft, is tiny. It's an incredibly capable airplane, which is why it's been used so heavily uh, in tactical ops in 
in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, our our approach is because of that, because of that tactical capability, uh, even even heavyweight, we can do some pretty unique things. So working glide, I, I think you know we, what we more talk about is how steep we can be on arrival. Um, when we're talking about going into, you know, CC is in, it's not a fighter. We're not going to go super fast. We're, we're, uh, once we get on approach, we're sort of, you know, if we're getting shot at, we're taking it is the bottom line. <laughs> and so we will try to come in as steep as possible. Um, and using the full capability of the aircraft, using the full capability of the aircraft, I've seen 20,000 feet per minute in a decent, that's not, but, uh, nice. but it is, yeah. When we were flying our approaches into Kabul, I mean, we're talking about starting a decent at um, a typically a thousand feet for every mile we are away from the field. So we can start, we can be at 10,000 feet and 10 miles from the field and, and be pretty close to, to getting all the way down and making it. It is, and it's, uh, you know, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Again, to put that into context, if you're flying a normal approach, uh, two miles from the field, you know, you're probably at a thousand feet, right? Something like that. So the fact that we can be that high, that close to the field is is really, really incredible. If you ever seen, if you haven't seen it at an air show, uh, go check out a C seventeen in air show. Voodoo probably does some of that stuff. Yeah, that's well, that's where I first met Voodoo was air shows and watching the C seventeen. The C seventeen demo is impressive because when you see that big old plane doing the things that it does, mind boggling. The fact you can back up to that's a whole other thing. But just the the turn radius, the ability to land and it's and the demos and i'm sure not even doing a you know it's not the maximum performance as far as the capability when it comes to landing but it's impressive i did want to drop this in there voodoo yeah. you're gonna be really appreciative you froze on a really good screen when you exited <laughs> the chat the first time i don't, uh, I don't even want to know <laughs> but i do appreciate you sharing that when you reflect back on the the two-year anniversary tom Oates, he i think pitching into what you were saying but well said I was on the ground at one of the lily pads in law enforcement bedding capacity, most intense experience of my career. So I cannot even imagine what that was because everyone's seen the pictures, right? We've seen the the C-17 surrounded. We've seen the long lines once everything was, you know, stabilized. I mean, the amount of people they're dealing with is just uh, unfathomable. And I think AP, you shared the story when you were going back and forth in your podcast where there was a suicide or, um, Intel that there's a possible suicide bomber on one of the planes that had broken through. So, again, just the, I can't imagine what this was like on the ground. Pure chaos is the only way I can envision it. All right. I want to jump to another Patreon question here. This one, a little bit, that's uh, still, I think, a softball considering both your backgrounds here. But I think AP and Voodoo, you both can lean in here. We'll, we'll kick it over to Voodoo to start with. But did the mission planning evolve over the course of the evacuation, or is it more or less turn the planes around as fast as possible and get them back ASAP? What were some, if any, of the tactical lessons learned from the individual air crews, and did those lessons change anything? So was the planning change? So Voodoo, maybe if you could talk about the, the month there, and then AP, maybe if you lean into that, and peel the, a different thread, pull a different thread, which would be the final mission planning. Are you pulling anything that's going on throughout the the month there? So, Voodoo, over to you first. Star, if you can talk about just the overall mission planning and how day to day did things change for crew going out day to day when we launched on our alert from 
McCord was where I launched from, you didn't know what you were getting into. So the crews were alerted just that they were going over to Afghanistan. We knew that we were going to be part of a non-combatant evacuation operation. So a NEO. But what that meant, how it was going to be actually conducted, we didn't have any idea about. We knew the intel picture going in. We knew kind of what had happened over the course of the runway being over in. But when a crew just launched from their home station, that was about all that they started out with at the baseline knowledge. Once we started into the operation around the, I would say probably around the 16th, 17th time is where you're really getting a good flow of information, where your tactics shops and your intel shops are pushing things back to home station, or at least out to the outstations, such as uh, Rams Diamond in Germany or Spain Gollum where some of the other crews were launching from, that's where you start to get a picture of what Kabul actually looks like, what the airport looks like. Going in, my first run was in the first couple of days. So we went in with very minimal knowledge. We knew what Kabul looked like because we had flown there in the past. Uh, but we were all going in under the cover of darkness during that time. So we were going inbound. Our normal tactical airspace of who we talked to was a little bit different, kind of like a, I mentioned in the podcast before. But... We didn't really have any idea on what the actual runway environment was going to be like. So from a crew waking up and doing a mission planning standpoint, like we went off with the baseline knowledge of what the airfield looked like. We knew where we were going to park um, and upload our passengers but or download our passengers in the first case of dropping off the 82nd there. But when we got there, we didn't really have a great, it wasn't the normal runway environment that we were used to. Kabul is an international airport that we flew into. It had a lot of airliners going in. And so you're usually seeing a barely, barely well lit runway. And our first time going in there, it was not. It was that night. You could see the taxiway because they had blue lights. And uh, the runway was almost pitch black. They had some small lights on it, kind of glow sticks and water jugs. And that was like baseline lighting. They had a little bit of ambient, ambient lighting there. But as far as the runway itself, it was very hard to pick up. We were on night vision goggles going in. So we landed, taxied off. They brought us to the parking area. And that's where we started uploading. So that was the first time. It was a little bit unknown. People didn't really know exactly who to talk to, where to go, what the environment was like. Fast forward as the crews got launched during the two and three week operation. You got more into a system and a rotation of, okay, we're taking off. We're going into Kabul. It's daylight or it's nighttime. It's a little bit more lit now. The security's better. It's more built up. And it allowed us to make it a little bit more streamlined. The actual Kabul landing and then the operations on the ground there went quite well and were very quick. Um, it was more getting back to home station and to Al-Udeed home station type. That that is where it took a long time and it was still a little bit painful because you still had to get everybody off the jet. You had Raven trying to download them. You had security forces and it just was a lot of aircraft in one location at one time, which is extremely hard to handle when the base infrastructure is not equipped for that. Um, big shout out to the 816s who allowed us and helped supply things that we needed like bathroom supplies, as I talked about before, and the ability to just bring water onto the jet. But... As an air crew standpoint, at least the knowledge that we had going into the operation and as soon as you were in it increased over the time because it became more of a, okay, this is the system that we're doing. 
but now the daily intel updates were different sometimes suicide bombers sometimes there's different threats out there and so that is really what you focused on as their crew as opposed to you knew at least the field that you were going to every time and you started to understand like what the actual security was and the lighting was past that yeah so i think fair to say and maybe an understatement uh the situation was dynamic yeah perfect <laughs> ap i want to Kick it over to you to, to pull on this thread. What, were you taking things as you were planning the final uh, five flights out of Afghanistan? Was there anything that was playing a factor that was going on day to day? Or was it more focused like you knew, hey, you're going to do this exfil and this is kind of the, the script more or less, but this is the game plan. What, what went into it? What did it look like? For the, the final mission, unlike all the rest of them, you know, Voodoo nailed it. If I if I could summarize how much planning went into all those other missions, it was none, absolutely none. I mean, by each individual crew, and we had uh, and and uh, I see one of the comments like the, and Voodoo mentioned the eight sixteen EAS the expeditionary airlift squadron out there. They did an amazing job. They all the planning, all the work was done by those folks who were already deployed out there. So we th we got phenomenal support from those folks. But really, when it came to each individual pilot, it was it was hey go go be a pilot, go be air crew, and go figure it out. Uh, certainly one of the bigger challenges I think we, we had, and, and I hope one of the great lessons learned that came out of it, um, very different from the final five for, for the final mission where we took the five C-17s in on that last night, we actually had eight C-17s, but we had three backups that went with us. There was a stack of, uh, of fighters and, uh, ISR, um, assets, like 20 other aircraft in the year. We had a ton going on that day. We had to pl we planned that thing for probably seven to 10 days. I don't remember when we we initially got into it, but that was a very detailed plan. I mean, that involved us uh, in a mission planning room there at the CAOC at the Combined Air Operations Center, planning, doing planning sessions literally every single day. And then myself and a couple guys from my team, we, we actually flew into Kabul just to go plan with the 82nd to meet with General Donahue and his team there and uh, the Air Force special ops assets that were on the ground. That part was was just sort of what we do. The, the reason we were there for that is, is that that mission set is uh, we practice it and we put in um, all the hours necessary to make sure that it that it goes well. And I and I know that that's why it did go well, that, that five or not. I mean, it was obviously there's a a ton of hiccups. You expect that. Uh, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. We all know that. Um, but, uh, but the plan was good enough that we were able to flex and, and get it done. So, so I would say just look two very different things. The, the final night, a lot of planning, the other 15 days of, of flying airplanes, uh, like the wild west. And it was, um, pilots, pilots just being amazing pilots is what it was. Yeah, I like the the quote that I think you had was, you know, we get paid for the judgment, not always making the right call. So um, a lot of good judgment calls being made, making it happen. Pivot here, this is a question that's in the chat. Any close calls with maintenance issues um, there, Kabul? And this is what is regards to like the Vol 3. So that's that's kind of a broad question. I've, we've alluded to, we've talked about other podcasts I've highlighted the fact to me, what I absolutely loved was the C-17s taking off when the runway was completely overrun. And also with the C-17 that was packed with 800 people in there. 
Like there was no takeoff and landing data that was exact. That they were making it happen, doing that judgment. So I'm thinking with the ROE, that might be kind of evolved three questions. So any close calls that either of you had when it came to maintenance or anything there on the ground, anything with the vol three, and again, for those listening or watching, it's the rules for operating any U.S. first aircraft more or less. That's one of the me books. As far as my crew went, I know maintenance was a big thing. It's always great to have a... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll... Sorry, if you got something, go for it. I think AP, he might have just a slight lag. So Voodoo, if you take it, and then uh, we'll jump back to, to AP. All good. Um, for our crew, the the aircraft that we launched from home station with was amazing. So absolutely a unicorn in the fleet. We could not find something wrong with it, and she performed great. But how the stage management worked out there is you would not keep your aircraft the whole time. So as soon as you would land and go into crew rest, your airplane would turn again and go off for another mission. So that's why big shout out to the maintenance all the guys on the ground that really were working day in, day out, 24 hours to be able to turn those jets because that was huge. There was some maintenance issues. Crews would push through it. Like we alerted to a jet that had a problem with the anti-skid, a problem with our heads up display. And it had one more issue, I think, with um, our APU, which is like a uh, air power unit. And we tried to trouble work or troubleshoot those three things multiple times. And we just could not get it to work because the jets were turning so often that they didn't, that maintenance didn't have the ability to really get in those good hard fixes that some of those jets needed. We had multiple jets on the ground. They were trying to do the best they could, but we never, at least I can speak for my crew. We were never in a place that we had to take a jet that was against a tech order or against anything that would put us in an unsafe scenario. If nothing else, our crew used our judgment. Um, kind of what AP said of the crews all were athletes out there and the commanders were really awesome in the sense that they trusted the decisions that we made. Our crew called a safety of flight once after operating for four days at 26 hours each. And it was to the point that we thought we could continue going, but our loan master finally called. And he's like, hey, I think we all are exhausted and we're putting ourselves in an unsafe scenario. Like maybe we should knock it off just for this last leg and get some rest and try again. And he was right. And we were in a place that it didn't affect the mission. So we were never at a point that maintenance put us in that place or that anybody was pushing. They did push us to do things very deep in the duty day. I know that there's a question about that. Um, I definitely have a story for that one, but past the maintenance point like i never ran into an issue that if i as the aircraft commander felt an unsafe scenario of taking that jet they would push me to do it they were awesome with it and the jets for the most part performed extremely well during the entirety of the missions i mean maintenance was maintenance and they were working as hard as they could but we were never in that scenario gotcha that's uh that's good especially just how busy that was ap anything that you saw Close calls with maintenance, Vol 3, anything that was of question? Yeah, I think that happened a lot. I think there were, um, you know, back to back to the crew just doing their thing. It's a, a minor miracle that no aircraft was broke in Kabul. But does that really would have slowed or even shut down some of the operations there? Kabul is a small, has a small parking spot, uh, parking area for C-17s. I think prior to uh, the evacuation happening, you know, park 
four C-17s there max. And by the by the time we got done, I think they were able to find other parking spots to get up to something like 12 at any given time, something like that. So he, uh, they did an incredible job there. And the fact that, um, that no aircraft was broken at Kabul for any significant amount of time, I don't think it's because the aircraft worked perfectly. It is because the air crew did what they had to do, understanding how that would have limited the operation and, and, uh, and just, you know, I don't think anybody anything put their lives at risk with when it came to maintenance, but, uh, but they definitely flew broke aircraft. I mean, it, it just wasn't possible for, for folks who don't really understand either that LED is 120 degrees outside. And so the, the organization out there, give another shout out to some amazing Americans and kind of just great maintainers in the eight Eames, um, the Expedition Air Mobility Squadron out there at, uh, at IUD. Those guys are incredible. Same deal. I think, I, I don't, Woody, you might remember this number. Something like 12 or 16 C-17s could park there, but by the time we were like right in the middle of it, I took a photo of the ramp because it was as far as you could see, there just were C-17s everywhere. How those maintainers in a 120 degree seat were able to keep working and keep turning jets. I mean, those guys, they are they are incredible unsung heroes, all of them, to keep that operation. And then, you know, and then and then you just, uh, we love the saying, I heard Voodoo say that, I love it too. Hey, just go be an athlete. That's what you got to do sometimes. Just go be an athlete. Take the jet, figure it out. Uh, I love it. There are a lot of athletes, uh, for sure, that, that month. And, I mean, to this day, the maintainers, that's one that I don't think get enough credit. They're the ones that make it happen and um, deal with a lot of problems here. I'm going to jump uh, to another chat question. It says, uh, you guys are rock stars, but this is, in your opinions, how do we prepare our young co-pilots and ACs to understand what could be asked of them should something of this magnitude ever take place again? I'll go to Voodoo first since AP just wrapped up. So what advice would you give for young co-pilots and ACs who do? I love this question. The The weapons officer in me loves this question, but more so the faith in me loves this question because as an instructor pilot, like your job is to teach and to make sure that the knowledge is imparted on the next generation to be able to go out there and fight the fight. Like we love training uh, individuals pilots, loadmasters, whatever it may be to fight the mission and keep us safe. So to go with this question, I know from personal experience that I have talked to loadmasters that came up and said, hey, I just wish I knew what I was getting into when I went out for OAR. I wish that I was prepared. And I think it comes into two aspects that people don't think about. It comes into the physical aspect of I'm able to fly the plane and do the mission in the back and upload and physically be able to do the mission. But mentally, that's the second aspect. Mentally, am I able to do the mission? And that is one that people don't think of often. So first part, you train, you practice like you play, you train hard at home station. Like we need to not only be really squared up on the basics, but we need to think of those scenarios that could happen that puts us in a contested environment that we are not comfortable in fighting with. So I I think that that is something that the Air Force is doing a good job at right now, putting ourselves in the places that we think the next fight's going to be, preparing for it, training to it. We can always train more. We can always be better at things, and that's something that every day we are pursuing. That is what I am doing this week at a uh, weapons and tactics conference. We are talking about training the crew force. We are talking about the things that we need to to be able to fight the next fight, whatever 
wherever that may be and whatever that may be. But I think also we need to be able to take care as a crew force and think about the next fight. So think about what it's going to do. If it is a fight of mass attrition, you need to be able to prepare yourselves mentally for that. That is a hard war to fight. And that's something that we don't like to think about, period. Not as military members, not as civilians. Like that sounds really, really tough when you think about it. Like sending people off to war. That's a World War II mentality. But that is what it's going to take to be able to prepare us mentally to be strong enough that if we ever do, which hope to God we don't, if we ever do have to fight those fights, that we are prepared both physically and our abilities to fly and mentally and our abilities to operate in such a hard contested space. Level up your listening with Bose QuietComfort Ultra earbuds and headphones with immersive sound and world-class noise cancellation for a not-so-silent night. Visit Bose.com slash Spotify to shop sound that's more than a present. If I would have kept making only the minimum payments on my credit cards, my debt would have taken me 47 years to pay off. These are real National Debt Relief customers. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get out of debt by myself. Credit card, medical, or personal loan debt? National Debt Relief negotiates with your creditors to reduce what you owe. National Debt Relief got me out of debt. You could be debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months. Visit nationaldebtrelief.com to learn more and get started. nationaldebtrelief.com. Yeah, that's a different problem set. AP, over to you. What what advice would you give? What do you think we need to be telling young ACs, co-pilots? You can mix in flight leads, instructor pilots, the whole mix. Super good, super good, Voodoo. That was, uh, I'd echo everything you said as well. I, I'll, I'll get to specific things. One, I'll circle back, Rain, to, to what you mentioned before on the judgment piece. Um, you know, we call them aircraft commanders, but our pilots, that's the, that's the goal is to become an aircraft commander. And I would say this to all the young folks, a commander's job is not to follow the rules. A commander's job is to apply judgment in the application of the rules. So, so be prepared when you get to that stage to make difficult decisions, to, to don't expect to be able to call home and ask for help or things like that. Like you, you're, it's the reason that we're paying you. It's the reason that you're wearing the uniform with, uh, with bars on the shoulder if you got them. And, and if you're a loadmaster or a maintainer, you have the same thing in, in other leadership roles, leaders exercise judgment and and, you know, back to what Voodoo said, whatever the next fight's going to be is not going to be easier. It's going to be harder. And we're just going to need more of that. So, um, you know, if I could throw something out to all the curve commanders that are out there too, is, is give your people the leeway to uh, to exercise judgment and to be wrong sometimes because that's how we're going to learn. And, and when you're when you're in these very difficult decisions, uh, these very difficult circumstances like we were two years ago, it's you know, there probably is no perfect answer. And so we have to give our people the leeway to exercise their judgment, even if it turns out to not be the right thing right away. And the second thing I want, I want to talk about what Voodoo talked about, which is the mental health piece of it. Here's what I realized while I was out there. You know, we none of us, we're all type A's. We're all, you know, a lot of people are athletes who are in this business now. And none of us, we don't like asking for help. We absolutely don't like doing it. So what I realized is you got to do it anyway. Um, and here's an analogy I'll use. Uh, I was college athlete, and after practice, sometimes things would be pretty hard. Uh, you, you know, you jump in an ice bath, or, or you know, you get things, you get your ankle taped up, 
or whatever it is you're doing, you do that, you get that treatment physically so that you can go out and perform again the next day, right? If you're, if you've got hurt muscles or hurt joints, like you're getting that treatment for those things so that you can go perform. Sometimes we need that same thing for our mental health and it's not, you know, I'm not talking about like long-term mental health stuff either. I'm not talking about PF, PTSD. I'm talking about our ability to go back. So, so for the, everybody who is flying out there, you know, you fly in there the first time and it's the greatest thing you ever said. It's harder to go back the second time knowing what you're about to face, knowing what to expect, knowing how bad it's going to be. So taking some time, you know, after you're done flying to the day at the end of your sortie to sort of rejuvenate, um, your mind to probably those of your crew members as well. And, and, uh, and to speak up and some, I wasn't great about, um, so I hope, I hope, uh, you know, folks learn from that. It's not bad to ask for help and we're doing it very specifically because we want to get back out on the field the next day. Got to have that mindset that that's why we're doing it so that we can go. That's kind of interesting. This is a complete pivot, but, uh, AP, this is more now our world. I don't know if you saw the FAA, and the VA. So there's things like disability payments or disability ratings that you get from leaving active duty and then your class one medical that you need to fly uh, airlines. But now they're going through and, you know, your uh, class one medical in the civilian world is a joke. And if anyone doesn't think it's a joke, now there's some people that just can't get a class one because they have health problems. That's not a joke. But what I'm saying is it's a five minute visit to the doctor. You pay them money and they sign you off. They're not drawing blood. They're not Unless you're over 40, you're not doing an EKG or anything of that note. But we don't do a very good job, I think, in the Air Force, nor on the civilian side of flying, of actually taking care of the person for the most part. It's usually like you just kind of deal with whatever you have so that you can keep flying. Like I know at one point, like I twisted my ankle something fierce. Uh, but I was like, ah, I gotta I gotta keep flying because I know if I do this, like it's probably gonna lead to x-rays and you know, I'm just gonna I wanna I'm gonna power through this. Or if you have a little bit of a cold, you're like, yeah, I'll probably be fine. I can keep going. Now, I just think that it's something that's interesting and ties into the mental health piece that's become more prevalent is if people need help, I think our system needs more work when it comes to taking care of individuals who raise their hand and say, hey, I need help. And this is not going to be an auto kill to your career. It's not, if you're in the military, you know, there's ways to navigate security clearances, et cetera, like there's a big stigma that goes along with it. I don't have the solution for it, but I think it's something that at least we start talking about and people are doing that, that it gets out there, that the system, in my opinion, is not great, that if people need help, they really, they're up against the corner and worrying about how my, how's my livelihood going to be? And that's not a good spot, I don't think. Let's see. I'm going to jump to a Patreon question here. We'll go with AP first. So do you think, and then Voodoo, up to you if you want to jump in here or not. I'm trying to keep this apolitical, but do you think the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a right decision in general, given the war lasted 20 years with no military solution on the horizon, and that continuing it would have cost more and more American lives? So this one, this is a, this is a deep one, but AP, what are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, my personal opinion, this, um, I don't mind talking, you know, using politics at all but this isn't that this is just this is just my opinion on it um i think it was time to go from afghanistan we've been there for 20 years i also think being there was the right thing to do i mean there are there's an entire uh you know 20 year history of afghans who have a better future because of america's presence there you talk about um 
there are a num if if you're a woman born in 2001 in Kabul, you grew up going to school. That's amazing. Like the education level that because America was there, that that was enabled, I think is amazing. I would take away anything um, that we did there. But it, but at some point, you know, we can't govern that country forever. And at some point, I think they need to stand on their own two feet. So yeah, I do think it was, it was time for us um, to go. But I don't ever regret going there either. The one thing that was an enormous mistake was the timeline for the withdrawal. That this is where, where there, I think there was a huge leadership error. And I remember, I remember uh, we were flying one day, one of those late nights. We landed at probably two in the morning, and the first thing you know, all of us know this: when you're done flying, is you go to the chow. Everybody goes chow, and you, you know, you go get a meal. You're, you're no matter how tired you are. And we're sitting in there. It's probably like. I think it's like two in the morning and on, on TV, we see the news is uh, the Al Jazeera news station. And it's the Taliban spokesman. And at this point, we're like halfway through it. There's talk of extending the deadline that passed August 31st because we're just not meeting the numbers. You know, there's so many people that, that need to come out and there's only so many days and there's only so many C-17s that we can use to do it. So we're, we're thinking it might go longer. And the Taliban spokesman comes out and he says, uh, August 31st is a red line. United States of America will be gone by August 31st. And our crew saw that and we kind of talked about it and we thought like, what, you know, the Taliban, this is a terrorist organization. Terrorists don't tell the United States of America what to do. It's not how it works. You know, we, I think we all wanted to be gone by the 31st, but the bottom line is what America should have done is we should have been there as long as it takes. You know, hey, we're leaving, but we're going to be here until this operation is over. And so I kind of said, you know, we better see the president come on tomorrow morning and and have our backs, you know, and say, hey, we'll be here till it's done. And the very next day, instead of that happening, the president came on TV and he said, uh, yeah, uh, we agree with the Taliban. We'll be out of here by August 31st. And it was that was a gut punch because I, I think we all knew one is disappointing. You feel like your your leadership doesn't have your back there. And we also knew that things were about to get worse. Because in order for us to meet the August 31st deadline with all those people there, it meant more flying. It meant more C-17. It meant more of everything. And just a, you know, the final seven days were going to be harder than the first seven days is what it meant. So, um, yes, the right right thing to do, right thing to be there post 9-11, in my opinion, in the right time to leave the wrong way in which we executed that final mission. I'll, I'll pitch in too, because I think the right thing to, to be there is time to go. However, my caveat is like, I, I don't know, maybe if even keeping a small presence there, because we kicked the hornet's nest, in my opinion, or we broke Humpty Dumpty and there was no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. But if you had a small force that was able to prop up the Afghan government and keep the Taliban or, you know, keep things stable, again, that this is a whole nother conversation in and of itself um, when you really try to yeah, you know, figure it all out. And there's, there's no really, I guess, great, great answer when it comes to yeah. But I'll, I'll add one more, one more piece to that though, Rain. You know, one of the things that we were, we were dealing with, what made it go in in the first place on August fifteenth when we went in the first time is, you know, um, my team had just gotten over there, expecting something to happen. We knew the Taliban was at the, at the gates of the city, and I woke up in the morning on the fifteenth to a news story that President Ghani had left the country. Like the president of Afghanistan got on his own private jet and he freaking bailed. 
So, so what, you know, I, what are we supposed to do? Like what government are we now protecting? Like we leave a force there. The Taliban has the city of Kabul surrounded. They're slowly like drawing the net tighter. So what we really would have had to do is like back that up months and maintain like a much wider presence and never let the Taliban like even ever get close to there. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be, yeah, I think that was, that was a hard decision. Like, are we ready to, to like go back into armed conflict with the Taliban? Cause I think that's probably where it was heading. Or do we have to like get out of there and and you know back to the leadership thing i i i'm i kind of point the finger at our president for the august 31st deadline absolutely need to point the finger at president ghani for just bailing no doubt he felt his life was at risk it was it was at risk yep. but bottom line is he he bailed and i guess regardless as you already highlighted uh here as well as your podcast like you don't tell anyone what you're going to do by drawing that line in the sand, not only did it induce chaos, it gave them the roadmap to what we're going to do versus how we left Bagram. Again, just ninja smoke out at night and leave them the keys and we're gone, right? But when you say this, it induces panic in the populace who's tried to get out of Afghanistan, as well as it's it's told the Taliban. Well, I mean, multiple factors. They've won. They control us. And yeah, they're driving the timeline, not us doing it. So if we were going to completely leave like we have, it might have been better just to slowly roll this out and then one night just be gone. And then when they wake up in the morning, no one's there. But that's just 100%. one man's opinion. So, Voodoo, do you, do you got anything you want to chime in on or reflect in 20 years? I actually agree with both of you. I think it was the time to go. I think it was a good thing that we were there during the time that we were there. And I think the way that we did it was not ideal, but... I can say even coming from a crew member's point of view, that was something that we faced while we were doing the execution of the NEO was the political, is this the right thing to do? Is this the not? And the thing that always kind of ran true, because you could get caught up in that pretty easily, especially with people reaching out to you saying, hey, you're doing great, or hey, this isn't our war to fight. It was the fact that you looked in the eyes of the people that were in the back of your jet and you knew that you were bringing them to a place that was safer than where they currently were. And that's the thing that we told ourselves every single day, that it doesn't matter the political stance on this. It doesn't matter if this is the right or wrong thing to do. Like, overall, we are taking these people to have at least a chance at a better life than maybe not have a life at all. And that's that's pretty much where we stood on it the entire time that we were operating. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back to, and you hear a lot of, our brothers and sisters and probably me and you guys, like, I mean, we worked with Afghans throughout, you know, we, they're part of many of our teams and many of the successes and operations that went on during that 20 year time period. To me, the big, the big failure, and this has occurred on multiple podcasts that, you know, SF guys have talked about, but we did leave a lot of people high and dry and that's a complete foul. So again, another podcast, another day, I want to kind of, move to wrap up here with a question and this is from Niels and unless you guys have anything else too after this question we can hang on here as long as we want but Niels he's actually a Patreon supporter I didn't realize this he dropped the comment but he also sent a question he was running he was the chief of ops at Army Reserve Command receiving a lot of the Afghans that made it once they came back CONUS and he just noted that it was remarkable to see interagency coordination receiving everyone back stateside I know both of you and your podcast talk about just the chaos that was going on at Al Udeed with all those people, but eventually as they got stateside, it looked like it flowed out. But looking back on this event, 20 years, heartbreak, confusion, anger, lost friends, family members, a lot of lives have changed. 
But is there a positive event or memory that sticks out or that you witnessed during the evacuation or during, I'd really say your careers dealing with Afghanistan? AP, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you three. Uh, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2014, 2015 for a little over eight months um, into Kabul. So I was very, very familiar with the area. I was at the headquarters at Little Fob. The only way in and out was a helicopter. And uh, I traveled, I had the opportunity to travel the country a lot during that time. And I, I, I joked that I, you know, I had over 100 stories on Black Hawk helicopters during that deployment, which was amazing as a passenger. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, and one of the things that, that I remember from that experience, from that up-close look on helos, which obviously fly pretty low, and then flying C-17s over the mountains is, uh, you know, we think of Afghanistan as, you know, it's a, it's a war zone. It's where we fought for 20 years. But, man, it's a, it's a beautiful mountains there. They're already incredible. And it never, there was never a time, especially in the winter when I flew in there, that I wasn't amazed at the uh the beauty of the country and then getting on the ground to you know how difficult things things were um so just overall that's that's probably a memory that i'm never going to forget is is how weird it was to like be flying back this place is so beautiful and then go into combat and the second one and i know Voodoo has a a lot of surprise and stories like this too is during the evacuation you know just on one of the many flights I will never forget the amount of little kids, like five, you know, five-year-old kids around that age that were on our airplanes. And I remember this one, you could just tell, you know, they had been, I, in my mission planning time, I walked through, uh, the actual base of Kabul and it was a giant homeless city. And I mean, and I mean that very literally there were Afghans who had been vetted, they'd made through the gate and they were waiting to get on a C-17 and there's no for them to go. So they literally were, were living on the streets there. Like, literally they found cardboard in cardboard boxes on the sidewalks. These families just sort of huddled together waiting to get on. And then they would get on the C-17 and this one particular flight, you would see that soon as they sat down, just the tension just leave their bodies. Like they, this feeling that they've like made it. This feeling probably of, of freedom for them. And all the little kids just passed out immediately like that's how it was and there was i remember this little girl she was probably eight and her probably looked like he was about and as soon as as soon as they got out he passed out and and sort of fell over into her lap and she just this eight-year-old girl just took her little brother like into her lap and just held him like his kid's shoes and so what dude said earlier when you get a chance to look into people's eyes like that that was the moment that i knew that it that everything we we're doing in the evacuation was worth it. I was glad I was there, being able to be a part of what we were doing. And you know that was 124,000 people came out, and you know they they left everything behind because America's a better place, and they knew it. And and only America, whatever challenges we have in this country, I'm always rem- I'll remember that story. I'm always reminded that the rest of the world- thanks AP again. The technical aspect of this, you know, AP sitting in a hurricane, Voodoo sitting in the car. You know, we're making this, we're making this happen. Um, I can barely spell technology. Voodoo, looking back on the last, you know, twenty years, the year, I mean, in your career, what positive memories can you pull out of this experience, and positive experience can you pull out of the evacuation? 
when I think of the C-17, I often couple that thought with the memories that I have of Afghanistan. I was on, we call it our dollar ride mission, which is the first mission that you go in a C-17 you fly someplace. I was on my dollar ride mission and we got recut, which is essentially like we got re we where we were going was uh changed based off of an aeromedical evacuation and we went into afghanistan and that was the first time that i had ever been there and i remember standing on the tarmac on the flight line as i watched the sun come up over the mountains and ap had nailed it on the head those mountains are some of the most beautiful mountains that you will ever see um it was it was amazing to watch. And I remember almost a surreal feeling of, oh my gosh, I am in Afghanistan right now. We are doing this mission. And it was really like the feeling of I am in the right place. This is where I am supposed to be. Like, this is what I signed up for. So that was really what started off my C-17 career. One of my favorite flights that I've ever done in the C-17 was my first combat airdrop, which I also did in Afghanistan. We went to Bagram, picked up the uh, onload, and then we dropped it in the middle of the country. And it was a humanitarian relief and it was really cool because I got to plan it and then I got to fly it. And that was a really surreal moment of being able to help people on the ground. And then having Kabul and being a part of the last time that we would be in Afghanistan really is a special place in my heart too. Because as I said, that's my favorite crew that I've ever flown with. But just the mission was something that resonated with so many of us of this is what we signed up to do we signed up to go help signed up to fly and to make this world a better place in any way that we could and so ap really hit the nail on the head of uh, the small children i know that i talked about the orphans but there's a picture of me holding like a couple month old um baby girl and it was so hot in the aircraft that Everybody was overheating, and all I was trying to do is get that baby as close to the vents as I could to keep her cool. And just the fact that, like, the parents or the guardians on that jet, granted it was teenagers at the time, but um, they were allowing me to, like, hold a child from their culture that was theirs. Just, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you came from. We were all humans just trying to make the best out of the situation really brings a perspective on what humanity really means to a person and just trying to do the best that you can with what you have. So Afghanistan has taught me a lot in multiple different ways. And it is one of the most beautiful places that really from the air that you will ever see. It is gorgeous in the summer and the winter. There's so many aspects of it. Um, but it has taught me a lot in life. It is someplace that like I will always hold near yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's pretty heartbreaking seeing some of these photos with people handing their babies up to Marines that are on the wall. Like, if you can really imagine just how bad of a spot you're in, that you're so desperate that you're just passing your your child off. I think that speaks volumes. I thought I was going to wrap this up, and I am, but I do have one more question. This one is a super softball question, and I'll, whoever wants it. But someone asked, what happened to the Apaches? Uh, Apache crews providing security. I actually really want to know what happened to the Apaches that were flying down the runway. Did those Apaches come out, those AH-64s, or did those things get blown up or just left behind? Yeah, we we uh, we it's, we'll talk about all the stuff that got left behind. Um, they came out. They came out on C-17s. We brought. Okay. We left a lot of stuff 
We left a lot of stuff there. It's okay. We left a lot of stuff there. But he, here's why we left it there. I don't. I personally don't have a problem with leaving that, that crap there. You know, we left a lot of RVs. Uh, we disabled a lot of vehicles. Like I saw with my own eyes. I saw some. I saw some really interesting things uh, with the way we disabled, especially helicopters and things like that. If we if we left it and it was a combat, we were supposed to have disabled it. I can't guarantee that happened because you know we're still dealing with people and it was Kabul and things were busy. Um, but I mean, what are we gonna do with all those Humvees? You know, they're like painted the right color for Afghanistan and we're going to bring a hundred thousand of them back to the U S and do what with them? Like why this, how many C-17s would it have taken to bring all that equipment out? I mean, I don't, I don't care that we left all that stuff there personally. I mean, it, I think it was, uh, we paid for it years ago for this, you know, 20 year period of use and whatever, here you go. Here's a bunch of trucks. If that's the case, the Apache crews, I have no idea how to the Apache. They, of course the crews came out. Yeah. I know they had a tough, um, they had a tough job there. I mean, they were, they were part of the, our initial response to the crowd, trying to disperse the crowds. You know, we watched that, watched the Apaches run up and down the runway, flying really low to try to get all the civilians to clear. It didn't work. I, you know, I know they were dropping non-lethals like flashbangs and things like that. That wasn't working. And they had a front row seat to a lot, a lot of the tragedies that happened there. So I, I know they came home. I know we brought helicopters home. Those Apache helicopters came home. Um, hopefully, those crews are have been taken care of by their service and uh, and are you know dealing with probably some of the things that I'm sure they had a vantage point that nobody else had, especially in those first two days when uh, you know when some really really bad things happened. A joke. I don't know if this is true, so maybe it's misinformation. But I flew with a gentleman not too long ago. He was a retired 06 Marine. But part of his job was figuring out how to get all the Marine MRAPs out of Afghanistan. And when they figured this was as the workup was starting, you know, a year and a half out, no, we're leaving. He and his team figured out it was going to take the entire Marine Corps budget, fiscal year budget, to get all the MRAPs out. So instead of doing that, what they did, they just went to the Army and said, hey, do you guys want these MRAPs? Before the Army knew that was going to be a problem. Now, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But uh, I can I can wholeheartedly see that being a thing. Uh, knowing how our military works. AP Voodoo, I appreciate you guys taking the time to share this. I'll throw this comment up on the screen. It looks like Manny knows you guys, but with both you goats, it was a pleasure. Staff Sergeant Gomez. So um, again, as we roll into the year, the second anniversary of the withdrawal, there's lots of thoughts and things to go along with it. But so thanks for joining me, guys. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Rain. Like absolute pleasure. Awesome. See you guys. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. Appreciate everybody who joined us. Uh, hey, let me let me say this. Don't forget, the war's over. I know I know the war's over. A lot of people gave their lives. It's our job. Those of us who are interested in this, just don't forget. Absolutely. Perfect way to end it, AP. Thank you. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.